Hi, I'm Gail, a grateful member of Al-Anon. And let me read the Al-Anon preamble. The Al-Anon family group are a fellowship of relatives and friends of alcoholics who share their experience, strength, and hope in order to solve their common problems. We believe alcoholism is a family illness and that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Al-Anon is not allied with any sect, denomination, political entity, organization, or institution, does not engage in any controversy, neither endorses nor opposes any cause. There are no dues for membership. Al-Anon is self-supporting through its own voluntary contributions. Al-Anon has but one purpose, to help families of alcoholics. We do this by practicing the 12 steps, by welcoming and giving comfort to families of alcoholics, and by giving understanding and encouragement to the alcoholic. Let's take a moment of silence, please, to consider the plight of those who still suffer, followed by the serenity prayer. Serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. First of all, Gail and I would like to thank uh, Joe and the, uh, um, the local arrangements committee for asking us to do this. Uh, I think we want to thank them. I'm not sure. When I was talking with Joe on the phone, I, I said, well, how many people do you expect? There? He said, oh, maybe about 100. <laughs> Boy, was he wrong. Anyway, um, the format tonight is going to be um, Gail and me qualifying and then sharing ways in which we each sabotaged our relationship in recovery, especially early recovery. Um, we are not here because we are experts in this field. We are here because we have experience in this field. There's a difference. And we are acutely aware that there are lots of people out there with lots of experience in this particular topic. So, when we're done, you can take over. There's only one ground rule for those who either volunteer to come up or are called upon by us um, to share how you, in particular, sabotaged your recovery, your, your relationship in recovery. And it is, that ground rule is that you must talk about how you yourself sabotaged it, not how your partner sabotaged. Okay? So, I think that's a very important ground rule. Okay. I'm a narcotic addict. I love sticking needles in my veins and feeling the effect of the stuff that went through them. And this led me to create all kinds of chaos and havoc in our relationship. We got married in Yosemite Valley in the summer of 1981. I was between my first and second years in medical school, and all we had to do was get through those next three years and then move back to California, because I was going to school at Michigan and move back to California and everything would be fine. And that was our goal, that was our dream, and that was my promise to Gail and her family because she's a native Californian. 
My disease reared its ugly head before I finished medical school and became extremely apparent when I was caught stealing drugs on two occasions at the uh, hospital where I was an intern in San Francisco. They kicked me out and wished me well three weeks before completion without credit. No offer of help, and they did give a report to the Medical Board of California, which prevented me from getting a license in California. Uh, this was devastating. To make a long story short, the next four years were filled, actually the next six years, were filled with crises and chaos. Um, I found another internship in Akron, Ohio, which I think was a special act of providence to take me and my disease and put us in the birthplace of AA. Because, believe me, being a dyed-in-the-wool Michigander, there was no way I ever wanted to live in Ohio. But there we were, and oh, come on. <laughs> we all know about the rivalry. <laughs> well, not the Minnesotans, anyway. Um, so there we were in Akron, Ohio, and I had no idea what the nature of my problem was, and neither did Gail. I was working at another hospital getting an internship, and I was still using. My father died that year. We had one child by that time, and another one was coming um, about a year later, after that, our second son. Um, and I was without a license when I was kicked out of that hospital, and several months later, the board allowed me to apply for a license after I demonstrated that I wasn't using drugs by some urine screens and, and some time. I went to work as an emergency physician, and I kept myself in that field on and off for the next seven years. Um, after several tries, I eventually used up my welcome at the next hospital. So that makes three hospitals that I was kicked out of and about four re-entries into medicine that I, that I was able to accomplish over the, over the period of that time. None of this stuff was, was very uh, pleasant to Gail, and it was, just, it, was, it was years of waiting for the next crisis. And my dishonesty and all the crap that goes with that was just making our relationship very pathological. Uh, I was sent to see a psychiatrist from the second hospital, and he thought that he could treat my depression but couldn't help me with my using. And he eventually sent me off to a, a very well-known 30-day program in the summer of 79. This was a uh, difficult period for us because Gail was pregnant with our third son, um, but we thought it would work because he wasn't due until about mid-September, and... Um, I was uh, going off to treatment in uh, mid or late uh, June. Seven days after I uh, entered that treatment program, our son was born seven weeks prematurely. This is not a good way to start a relationship with a new child. Um, so you can see I and my disease did an awful lot to sabotage our relationship even before recovery. And when my first recovery started, um, we weren't in any really good shape as a couple. I got out of that treatment program and used that very day, and it took another four months before I rocketed into AA when I lost my DEA license and then my license to practice medicine. On the way, I nearly died of meningococcal pneumonia. I was hospitalized for 11 days, massive doses of penicillin, empyema, chest tube, not a pretty sight, and uh, I can only, only imagine 
even a shadow of the dread that Gail must have felt during that time. New baby, husband dying, no idea of what's going to be in the future. This was not what we had planned. And so I started my first sobriety on October 26, 1979. And at, that, at this point, I guess I'll hand it over to Gail. feel like I need to qualify a little bit um, in just sharing that neither of us grew up in alcoholic families. Um, I grew up in the Central Valley in um, California in Fresno. Um, had a, I thought, a pretty, pretty healthy family. Had both sets of grandparents in town. So have a lot of happy memories from my childhood. Um, a lot of family gatherings and uh, things to do couple of things, though, to me that were really significant as I look back and that I see really kind of set the stage for how this all fit in. Um, one thing was that um, my mother's side of the family were physicians. Both my grandparents were physicians. My father's side of the family were Christian scientists. And <laughs> so... Um, you know, as young as five and six years old, I, I knew how to play that one. You know, when you were sick, who you went to. Um, and, and just grew up with that huge dichotomy, um, being able to block things out and, you know, those unspoken rules. Um, so that certainly was really significant. Another thing, um, that certainly was, grew up in a, in a family, um, Mother was a teacher, um, father was an architect and interior designer, but was very much a perfectionist and workaholic, and certainly feelings were not talked about in our family. Um, and a very significant event happened when I was in high school um, that my grandfather committed suicide. He had lung cancer. Um, it was in the early 60s, um, and um, I have come to learn that it was his way of saving the family from the expense uh, and all, but it was a pretty devastating event, um, and I was the favored grandchild. But that word was never talked about in our family. So if you can only imagine just a curtain of shame coming over, um, of the need to keep things silent, quiet, don't talk about things. Um, and we kind of went on the next day, <laughs> um, even though something something absolutely devastating. And as I came to understand, set in patterns for me for the for the rest of my life. Um, um, you know, went away to to college and in Santa Barbara. Um, Met, met Tom, and I think I had a, a, you know, really in some ways a pretty naive childhood. Um, um, I thought Tom was a lot of fun when I met him, you know. I, I see now it was, okay. <laughs> 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 some things should have been a tip-off. We, we met in Yosemite National Park, and um, he was a waiter, I was a waitress, and we used to have dates in the bar, and he'd have a double scotch, and I'd have chocolate milk. Um, I can look back on those now and, and see some, some signs, um, but didn't see them at the time. 
Um, we lived in Ann Arbor for a few years, and um, in the early 70s, um, and both worked hard, but really played hard too. So, kind of looked that our dreams were being fulfilled when we were, ended up in San Francisco, and um, I was so happy to to be back because the the goals and the dreams that that we had. Um, set aside for ourselves were about to start happening. Um, family was was important to me and to be close to them. Um, Tom mentioned um, being kicked out of um, the internship um, short of finishing. What's significant about that event is that because we didn't want to face everybody else, we loaded um, our few possessions in, uh, I don't know if we got a U-Haul or what, in the middle of the night and left town. <laughs> didn't say goodbye, didn't say anything, just left out of shame. And in fact, spent a few months, I think it was, um, with my parents as he frantically searched um, for what he was going to do. Um, and it was a pretty pretty uh, tense time of again my family doesn't talk about things though so it was just kind of this secrets that were going on and when it um, was time to make the move to um, Ohio um, I bring up this sofa because I swear it's what kept our marriage together for a while it's this green Victorian sofa that was a family piece, and I had loved it as a child. And um, my grandparents that were both physicians were giving it to me kind of as a gift. And it was a huge responsibility. So it got, well, in fact, in the backyard, it, it was like taken to the van, and then I couldn't bear to take it, so it went back to the house. And then it went back to the van, and, you know, they finally put the sofa down in the middle of the, the lawn and said, you know, which, is it going or is it not going? Um, because they were giving me something that was very valuable, but I just couldn't bear that responsibility. It ended up that it went to Ohio with us. Um, and... Uh, was like one of my pride possessions and really represented a lot of, of uh, a connection uh, with kind of my, my heritage and what was important to me. Um, Tom mentioned those were pretty chaotic years. Um, you know, I coped by staying really busy, um, going to grad school, taking care of kids, having kids, um, being really involved in community events. But again, not talking about those events that kept coming, you know, DEA people on your front steps, um, certified letters. You know, I, I, I don't think I, I panic anymore, but I used to see one of those and I would Im immediately have a sense of dread um, because it certainly I'd never seen any good news that had come in those in those letters. <laughs> um, and Tom mentioned the um, the pregnancy of our of our third child. Um, pregnancy that was pretty difficult um, um, to begin with. That was unplanned. Um, a lot of problems with that pregnancy. 
And this was during the period of the psychiatrist, too. And the point that really stands out for me is that even though the psychiatrist had said the things that Tom shared, the psychiatrist also felt that part of Tom's psychological problems was that he could not deal with my pregnancies. And that somehow what I interpret that, that to be is that I was responsible somehow for what was going on with him. So when he went off to treatment, um, I believed it was for drug addiction. My level of knowledge was pretty, pretty um, non-existent. So when he came home from treatment, I welcomed him home with a bottle of wine. So there's number one sabotage in recovery. I came out of that treatment center, like I said, not well. And already using again. But when the DEA guy and the board's investigator showed up on my front step together in tandem with their little briefcases and pinstripe suits asking me to surrender my licenses, um, it woke me up. We didn't have any resources. I didn't have any job. Well, I, I was working at the time, but I knew that giving up my license would mean I couldn't work, and so I initially refused. And then two weeks later, my attorney and my psychiatrist prevailed upon me, mostly my attorney, that in order to have a chance of getting it back, I'd better surrender it. So I did. So on October 26th, when they visited, I had my last use. After they left, I went out and bought one more vial of tall one and figured they wouldn't process the paperwork quite that quick, so. <laughs> that was the date of my last use at that point. And I rocketed into AA. It was the only resource I had left. Couldn't afford the psychiatrist, couldn't do anything else except go to meetings, and that's what I did. I went to a lot of meetings. And I had a sponsor who had been um, assigned to me more or less by my treatment program, who had been a former graduate of that program, and I spoke of him on, on Wednesday evening. Um, and he helped, but he was in Cleveland. We were in Akron, so he was kind of remote. I had another couple of men who served as my sponsors. I, I was accused in the program of um, doing something that I wanted to do and then canvassing my sponsors until one of them agreed with me. This is not the way to use a sponsor, folks. I built an AA wall around me. And this is one of my sabotages of the relationship. It speaks in the big book, in the, in the chapter of the family afterwards, about how the, the family needs to be tolerant if the alcoholic goes gung-ho with AA and spirituality, even with religion. And that's certainly what I did. I was told years later by some of the wise heads in Akron that I was running around at the big meetings there trying to heal everybody. This was where I was building my self-esteem because I certainly wasn't getting it at home. And I was using AA as a new emotional home. 
I believe that this can be relatively common in early recoveries, but we need to be sensitive about this and, and the effect that it has on our families and our significant others. Um, so I was avoiding my responsibilities at home under the patina of AA, saying, look at how good I'm doing. I'm going to all these meetings and I'm helping all these people not understanding the effect that it was having on her. So that's really my first, or one of my first um, sabotages of the relationship. And I did it unknowingly. I did it with good intentions. I, it, was, it was simply, I used AA as a defense mechanism. And I'm not saying that this is all bad. I am saying be on guard about it and be in communication about it, about the effect that it's having on the family. When you're early in recovery, you need to go to a lot of meetings. There's no doubt about it. But don't be a first and twelfth stepper. There are ten steps in between that you have to do before you start to help others. And I wanted to help others right away. What I suffered from at the very beginning was um, kind of a, it's referred to as the honeymoon effect. Um, thinking everything was fine. Number one, he was home, and extra, extra hands around the house. And um, thinking, too, that um, this was the solution to all our problems, not realizing the patterns that were so ingrained in both of us um, were certainly really, um, really entrenched in our relationship. Um, very much denial absolute denial of what was going on, um, kind of pretending that everything was just kind of going on. Um, when people would ask, well, where he was, you know, making up stories, lying, um, certainly not coming to terms with, with um, that he was an addict. I remember beginning to say those words <laughs> and, um, and couldn't really couldn't, um, the, the shame. Having really magical ex expectations, just, you know, he was home, everything should be fine. Um, why weren't they? Uh, it was like setting it up for failure um, by not looking realistically at what was going on. Um, lying, avoiding reality, blaming um, what problems we did have being totally on, on him. Needless to say, my self-esteem was uh, probably pretty low. And I tried to build this, like I said, by helping others. One of the specific things that I did was I tried to create a recovery hostel. <laughs> Don't do it. I more or less adopted this down-and-outer who was trying to get out of the uh, local indigent males uh, treatment program um, in Akron. And as I think back on it now, I actually enabled him to leave that program, and that really hurts me. And I wonder how Fred's doing today or if he's even alive. But I welcomed him into our home. I said, yeah, we've got a third floor. You can camp out up there. That's fine. No problem. He lived with us for a few months. Seemed to be doing well, got a job as a night janitor, and 
I didn't have a job, so I was transporting him because he didn't have a driver's license. I was codependent on him. And this didn't sit well with Gail. She had the responsibility for raising our three small boys, and we had arguments. We had really serious arguments. Only occasionally would they come to blows. Rarely, actually. And she'd be hitting on me, and I'd have to restrain her. Because I knew if I hit on her, I was out. I was gone. That was, that was a known rule in our household. So, this guy relapsed, returned to drinking while he was living with us. And bless my uh, sponsor's heart and, and God bless his soul, he came immediately to the house when Gail called him because I was by this time working again and I was not at home. And threw his ass out on the street, actually hauled him off to the local detox and got his possessions out of our home. And uh, that was the end of that sorry saga. Um, one of my other favorite things to do was um, begin to sabotage. You can tell I'm beginning to carry around a lot of stuff of uh, resentments, anger. Um, but um, I did it very indirectly, so I didn't even know that I was sabotaging. I would um, ask Tom, oh, you don't need to go to those meetings tonight. I could really use your help here at home. Um, I would um, really kind of, you know, isolate his recovery program from from any connection with the rest of our lives. didn't want anything to do, really, with um, you people. <laughs> I can remember, though, I did go to some aftercare um, meetings, um, but I took the baby Clark with me because I noticed something about you all. You hug a lot. Right? And uh, if I had the baby, you couldn't get close to me. But it was very much that I wanted to keep, you know, any kind of whatever was going on <laughs> at a distance from us it was pretty, pretty, pretty scary. Um, I see it was sabotaging, though, too, because I was resisting any kind of change. I, I didn't have any control over what was going on with him now. And certainly growing up, I, I was raised to be in control. I felt really comfortable doing that. I, um, I actually saw him, you know, getting better at times um, and in some ways didn't like that. Well, saw him getting better. And so wanted to pull him back into what felt comfortable to me. I had in my disease completely relinquished all financial responsibility for the household. And Gail had picked up the ball on that one. 
This was not a job that she necessarily wanted to do or enjoyed, but she had to do it because I was irresponsible. Oh, was I irresponsible. See, I have, a, I have a problem with impulsive spending, but we'll get to that a little later. Anyway, um, she took over the paying of the bills and the managing of the finances, and when I came out of treatment, I wanted it back. I said, okay, I'm all well now, I'll handle this, actually, when I got into my first recovery. I went so far as that following spring of, of 1980, I didn't have a job, or I w at least I wasn't working in, in medicine because my license was still suspended. And we had $60 in the bank to our name. We had been able to keep up with the um, house payments and the car payments, largely through the huge generosity of our parents who loaned us large sums of money. And I'm glad I did it as loans and not as grants. <laughs> um, that really makes me feel like, like I, I uh, didn't take advantage of them. But we, we were close to penniless. And I got the bright idea, since we're in such bad financial straits, I am going to completely control this whole thing. And I took 40 of those dollars that we had and I spent them on a big ledger book, <laughs> filler pages, and a mechanical pencil <laughs> with lots of erasers. And I set up a budget that the Federal Office of Management and Budget would have been proud of. <laughs> Entries were to be made every two days for everything. Buy a candy bar, it's got to go in there. Okay? Spend money on a light bulb, it's got to be in there. And I made her do it too. We each carried around a little piece of paper, and if there was any pocket money that we spent anything, it had to be written down with the category that it was to go under. I was so compulsive about this darn thing that I actually, when I went to my second treatment and got the opportunity late in the treatment to have my new personal computer that I had built, I learned Microsoft Basic and wrote a program that duplicated this budget and did all the computations for me. You know, I'm a sick guy. I just <laughs> But you know what? It worked. We got out of trouble eventually. What's the matter, Mary Beth? <laughs> it worked. <laughs> um, but this, this area of the finances is one where you can really sabotage a relationship. And I did my best. I, I enforced this this uh, thing upon Gail, and finally, a couple few years later, she rebelled and said, I'm not going to do this anymore. Just give me an allowance. I'll be responsible for it. And I said, well, okay, we're out of the woods enough at that point. And so to this day, she's had a lot, an allowance. <laughs> she also earns a lot of her money, most of it. And i um, happy, to, happy to write the check for her every twice a month. Um, I've continued with financial management of our, of our funds to this day, and, and it has gotten us out of, out of a lot of trouble. But in the beginning, my um, obsessiveness with it was, was really damaging. One thing that I recommend, and this may not work for everybody, but it seemed to work for us, is that we started out like most loving couples do with a joint checking account. 
We split that up later into two separate checking accounts. Now, this will only work, of course, if the two members of the relationship are responsible. Um, but if they're not responsible, if one of them is not responsible, then that person shouldn't have control of the purchase strings at all. Maybe it's better if, if one of the members of the relationship is not responsible to have their own checking account. The joint checking account I've seen get a lot of people into trouble. So um, think about it. Think about it. That was one of our solutions was to have separate checking accounts later on, and it, and it worked for us. Oh, I could say a lot about this particular one. <laughs> but thank goodness for Al-Anon, and I can move on. Um, <laughs> one of... Uh, the things, though, I, I really see that um, I could um, fight back with um, was, um, and this was almost more after the, the second treatment, which I don't know if you're going to oh, yeah, talk it. to that, um, was um, not letting him back in the family. You know, in a lot of ways, I talked about the honeymoon period of wanting him back in, but at the same time, not wanting him back in. Um, and I didn't trust him. Um, I wanted to avoid him. Um, but I also wanted my children to have a father. And I more so would push family activities than the two of us doing things together. Um, put that certainly over um, the two of us just, you know, never spent time together. In fact, we'd, we would take family outings to Columbus for the medical board trips. Uh, um, because Tom had to go before the medical board on a every three months. Uh, so we took a lot of trips to, to Columbus, and those would be family, family gatherings, family outings. Uh, that was this idyllic family that somehow I thought was going on. Um, um, but it was very much not letting not letting uh, Tom get close to me by avoidance. Um, it was the, my relationship with the kids and, and his involvement with them. So it was very much the, the kids um, in the middle. And I responded to this by making relationships outside of the family. I had intimate relationships with people in AA and outside of AA. And I went to those relationships, both male and female, for the emotional support that I felt I wasn't getting at home. And that, of course, was very, very damaging. We are supposed to have solid, intimate relationships in recovery with other people in recovery. Nothing wrong with that. But when they are used to escape the home responsibilities, that's not healthy. These relationships um, were very important in my early recovery, but what I didn't see 
was I was using them as a defense mechanism. I was using them as a place to run to where I felt safe. Because home certainly didn't feel safe. Gail tolerated a lot of those relationships. Some she didn't. But that was uh, another way that I sabotaged our relationship. I started, uh, my first Al-Anon meeting was in 1979. Um, But I didn't really think it had anything they were talking about me and I didn't think the problem was me it was all him um, so didn't stick around um, but certainly did start attending on a regular basis in 1981 after his second treatment and um, I was pretty numb when uh, when I came into Al-Anon um, in, in, in some ways, it was like easier to deal with the addiction because I was so in denial and really didn't know what I was feeling that that's how I, I coped. So as I now began to get involved with Al-Anon and listen to people and begin to unfreeze some of my feelings, um, I was beginning to feel. And one of the things I heard from Al-Anon, you know, was giving me permission to have feelings. Um, and I especially fixed on one, and that was anger. Right? So it became very justified anger. I was just expressing my feelings. Um, always in that direction. Uh, um, you can see I had a lot of significant losses in my life. Um, loss of family, loss of career goals. I, I often say I've lost the whole state of California. Well, that's a pretty big loss. Um, and so every interaction almost um, was um, an anger. Um, certainly tried to control it um, with children around. But there would be times, you know, when they were in bed or they were out of the room. uh, And uh, it would just be a volcano that would be coming out. Uh, I've come to understand that that anger was um, really pushing him away. Uh, Somehow felt safe for me. Also made me feel real powerful in a real powerless situation. Um, but I understand now that underneath all that anger was a, a lot of fear, um, incredible fear, incredible hurt. Um, I would also make a lot of threats and um, I can't remember all that I threatened I would do. You know, I would threaten I would leave sometimes. Um, um, some of those, you know, I would leave for periods of time. Um, but when I thought things were getting a little bit better, I would, I would come back. Um, one significant threat I made was, you know, when the kids are all grown, I'm out of here. 
And that was a significant one we had to deal with just a few years ago when our youngest um, in 1998 graduated from high school. And uh, we found that that was an issue that had been an underlying current all these years in, in recovery. So I get my license back in August of 1980, and I go back to work in the emergency department where I had been before my first treatment. And I'm doing well. Actually, um, I didn't go back to the emergency department right away because the hospital where I'd worked had lost its uh, residence, and they needed help with their inpatients, and so they hired me as what is now today called a hospitalist. We didn't have a term for it in those days. And I worked through the rest of that year in a very nice job, 8 a.m. to 4 p.m., Monday through Friday, no on-call responsibility, no histories and physicals, just taking care of medical occurrences, sometimes emergencies, on, uh, the, in hospital patients. And it was a very comfortable time, and my recovery was growing, and my self-esteem was coming back, and, yeah, we were still struggling. Um, and, and we, were, we were needing some outside help, and we looked for a marital counselor, and uh, that, that never worked out because she wanted to talk about the relationship and I wanted to talk about sex. And, you know, we had a really disconnect in that area. So um, the, the job went so well that when they started up a new family practice residency, in the summer of 1981, they asked me to be a second-year resident and to be the chief resident. I said, oh, great. I got a chance to catch up. And I looked at the financial picture. I'd been earning quite a bit of money in that hospitalist position, and there was no way I could continue to support us on a resident's salary which was less than 50% of what I was going to be earning, so I convinced them to let me moonlight back in the emergency department. My old bosses were against it. They said, he'll relapse. They had a new group in there by that time, and they let me go ahead and, and work in it. I ended up spending, with on-call duty, emergency department moonlighting, and the residency program over 120 hours per week in the hospital. I call this the catch-up syndrome. I wanted to catch up to where I felt I should have been had I not had this disease in the first place. It didn't take but a month for me to start using again with that kind of a schedule. And that was coincident with the Cleveland IDAA meeting, which was my first in 1981. And I was on the planning committee, the local arrangements committee, as we now call it, and actually did work for that meeting. Some of you in the room remember that. I organized a tour of the important sites in Akron for the founding of AA, ending at Dr. Bob and Ann Smith's gravesite. That was a very emotional time for me because I knew I was in trouble. The previous year, I had sent one of our hospital's doctors off to treatment at the Talbot program. Now, 
Back in my first treatment program, I had been told that if I had more trouble, that's where I needed to go, was this place down in Georgia that was run by a doctor named Doug Talbot. I don't know how they saw it back then, but somehow they did. Um, and I was doing an, uh, an alkathon, a breakout session, on one of the nights of that meeting, and this tall, lanky guy comes in and sits down in the front row and stretches his legs out in front of me, and here's Doug Talbot right in front of me. And I was frightened because I had this secret that I had already started using. I had talked with him by phone several times but never met him. Six weeks later, I was apprehended, terminated from the hospital, sent to see my sponsor. Gail and I went up to see him on September 21st. My last use was on September 20th. I had used for seven weeks. And my sponsor, Jay, said, Tom, in order to save your career, to save your license, let's say to save your life, you're going to have to go off to treatment again. And not just any treatment, you have to go to long-term treatment. I said, oh, Jay, let me just do another two weeks back where I was before. That will take care of it. He laughed. He said something that Gail and I remember vividly. He said, Tom, you're going to die. I knew he had me. I mean, my license was on probation. They find out that I'd relapsed. Whoa. The Ohio board did their best with me. They really did. They gave me plenty of chances, I think, because I kept on trying to get well. But being a medical board, they're not very therapeutic. They're very punitive, and I knew that punition was coming my way if and when they discovered my relapse. So he said, I want you to go to Doug Talbot, and I knew he had me, so I went. I called the next day. They had no beds. Oh, my God, I can't escape. Here I am back in that same hellhole of the crisis having just completely disrupted my family. The relapse was discovered. The other shoe had fallen, and I had no place to go to escape. It took three weeks. I'm sorry, two weeks for a bed to open up. And Gail drove me angrily up to the Cleveland, uh, Cleveland airport, and I had a one-way ticket on Eastern Airlines to Atlanta. That's pretty bad. <laughs> I had no idea if I would ever come back to my home, have a marriage, or ever be able to practice medicine again. And it's at that point that I started to become willing, willing to follow direction. This was not a happy time. But I want to point out to you the dangers of the catch-up syndrome, in particular workaholism, and going into the other process addictions. Gambling, food, sex, money, spending, etc., etc. Okay? This was the big sabotage. In uh 1981, um, 
thinking back over those those couple of months, um, was very much trying to decide once again if I was staring, staying in the marriage, if I was leaving. Um, you don't know how many times that green sofa would come to mind. <laughs> you know, I could handle just, you know, the three kids and myself leaving. <laughs> Somehow, like, how was I getting that sofa back to California? It sounds idiotic now, but we had no money. <laughs> there was shame just over everything, so how could I reach out for help? Uh, and so somehow doing something different was scarier than staying in the muddle that I was in. So I stayed in the muddle. Um, I was able to go down to Atlanta for a two-day workshop. So got a touch, got a touch of some sort of family um, contact um, and I remember asking Doug is there any hope for him I, that's kind of what the basis of what went on from there um, I also knew that the, the joke was that because Doug did so much with the Ohio Medical Board after Tom left treatment there was a joke that he had a contract on Tom's life if he relapsed. So. <laughs> but we began to um, get a little more involved in recovery um, activities. Um, went to recovery treats, retreats. Um, certainly began attending IDAA on a regular basis. And one of my pitfalls was beginning to compare ourselves to other people. Um, I saw people that in recovery had things back. <laughs> and uh, we didn't have much to start with. Um, but somehow those things on the exterior seemed to be pretty impressive. And... Um, I came from a family that looking good was really important. Uh, and so the bit about faking it, um, but feeling really empty inside. Um, coming to um, IDAA and the retreats also would be a time where it was the two of us together. And uh, in an environment such as this where we're hearing a lot of things come up from the past, um, things that maybe I had never heard about in his story, I heard at IDAA, um, brought up a lot of raw emotions. I, um, I don't know if anybody can identify in the, the hotel rooms after some of these long days at IDAA were not real pleasant um, situations with our, with our, uh, you know, with our discussions. They quickly um, ended up into to fights um, because we had so much that was unresolved. All right. 
and that was not in touch. Um, neither of us were in touch with. I was in Atlanta for five months. Doug kept me there for an extra month and actually paid me to work for him for that last month, which was a real honor. And he did this because he said, Tom, the state of Ohio is not ready for you to return. <laughs> Give me a chance to get him ready. He went to Ohio to talk with Bill Kennedy's program at Shepherd Hill. Bill was starting a program there. And um, used that opportunity to visit the offices of the medical board. Uh, he'd had prior dealings with them, not always successfully. Um, and he convinced them to allow me to keep my license because they had wanted to uh, wanted me to surrender it again, and they were going to shred it, totally revoke it, and say, "Don't even call us for two years." That's that was the initial response when they discovered my relapse. Doug convinced them to allow me to continue to practice, extend the probation, and the big condition here was that I had to provide them with a letter of unconditional surrender of my license in the event of another relapse. And I did daily drug screens. I peed in the bottle every day for five years. Some of it, some of it before going to Atlanta and for then two years after. So when I hear people crabbing about weekly random urine screens, I don't have a lot of sympathy for them. <laughs> That's how much I was trusted at the professional level. That's how much I was trusted at the personal level. But day by day, my recovery continued. We needed significant help, and we got that help from good friends, and sponsors in IDAA and at the um, retreats at Callaway Gardens that were held for the uh, um, for Doug's program at that time. And, and I tell you, I think maybe they were afraid to see us coming after a while because they knew we were always carrying this huge bag of problems. But they helped us through it. And our special thanks to Ed and Nancy, or Ed, Ed Waits and his, his wife at that time. Uh, we were <laughs> sitting with him last night and kind of jokingly talked about how Gail and I made it, and he and his wife didn't. <laughs> but he's very happy now with, with, his, with Nancy, and, and we're happy for him. Um, we required a lot of putting back together, and we required a lot of counseling. In 19, um, so this was 1981 when I started my current recovery. And it's been an uphill struggle, and it's not always been smooth. But in 1988, I got the bright idea of forming a corporation to help out with uh, people who needed long-term treatment. And over the next three, six years, this became um, a real threat to our future. I, of course, had all this utter self-confidence that it would work out. Gail wasn't similarly confident, so she signed on um, with the corporation, and, and the two of us have worked together ever since. But it was a very threatening period of time for us. 
And we went to marital counseling, and we kept going, and we kept going. And our therapist said, you guys don't need to come anymore. And we said, yes, we do. Yes, we do. And even though we haven't gone to a marital therapy session in many years, we are committed to each other that we have not gone to our last one. That really helped. Not that Gail became reassured by anything other than the eventual success of the business, but it helped us in communications. It helped her to see that I really was trying to build a future for us. And the last really significant thing I want to talk about is, is a gigantic amend. I had made lots of amends in my 12-step work, eighth, ninth, eighth and ninth steps. But I had never been able to make an amend to Gail or her family for losing California. And I felt it as deeply as she did. Well, maybe not as deeply, but I felt it deeply. And I knew it was a huge loss to her parents and her family for not having her close by. And about six years ago, I was applying for a license in California. Remember, that was blocked back in 1975. I figured enough time had lapsed. Maybe they had forgotten about me. And I found myself running up against an internal resistance, and so Gail offered to take over the work, and it actually took about two years to get all of the paperwork together and make the application and then finally to go out and take their um, little oral exam. And I now have a California license. It's only a partial amend, but it's a significant one to me. I think that at least if I needed to, I could say, okay, we're done here. We can move to California and I can still practice medicine. And I'm very grateful to you, Gail, for doing that for me. So, You got more. Right. I have more saboteurs. <laughs> um, I think one for me that was really um, significant is not taking care of myself, no. um, not identifying my needs. Um, because in order to do that, you have to begin to reach out. Um, requires relationships. Not knowing what I what I needed, um, not being able to take risks, uh, very much not being in touch with myself, and so having a hard time having a relationship with myself, let alone having a relationship with somebody else. Uh, resisting doing any kind of uh, activity that's going to to change. You know? um, the counseling I see took a lot of years um, because it was going over some of the same issues <laughs> again and again and again because when you stay in the victim role, nothing changes. Um, but I do know that beginning to have a third person present um, and helping us begin to communicate and talk out things was certainly really significant. Um, 
when we um, talk about some of the things then that we have began to do in in recovery, um, that began to be healthy um, mechanisms. Um, The counseling certainly was um, a real significant one. And another one was, um, you know, is working the steps um, and beginning to take responsibility for for myself, um, beginning to take some ownership of some my part in things. Um, beginning to be able to um, to apologize, um, and I don't know when this happened, um, but it's definitely through working the program and working the steps. There was a point at which I began to see that I needed to make a shift towards working towards reconciliation instead of revenge, and. That was a real significant um, movement for me. I began to be aware of little things like my tone of voice, of just how I responded to him in just a simple little request of, you know, did I get the mail? I began to bring the focus more on myself um, and take you out of my vocabulary um, and start taking more and sharing about I. We've drawn up some things that we feel have been important in this reconciliation process. The first one is a mutual commitment to the relationship. Um, we mentioned the, the counseling, and um, I, too, you know, really see that um, somebody um, intervening with us was really um, important. We didn't seem to be able to... Um, see our behavior on our own, we needed a third, you know, a third pair of eyes to look at what we were doing. We decided to stick with the winners, to focus on those people who appeared to have good recoveries. We found a lot of those people, a lot of our heroes right here at this meeting. We kept coming back. Our kids started coming in 1984 at the Minneapolis meeting and came for many years, and they were the Alateen chairs in 1992 in Grand Rapids when we hosted the meeting there. This is our 24th consecutive IDAA meeting. It's an important part of our recoveries, and we've found a lot of winners here. Um, We certainly know that... um Part of the recovery of our relationship has to do because there's been a spiritual component to it, um, very much from the 
from the beginning in the Akron days, that we did have a church connection there. Um, and certainly I can still remember a minister um, when Clark was born prematurely going, something isn't computing here. Where's Tom? and beginning to be um, honest and being accepted. Um, But that spiritual program is in many dimensions um, that's shared with us. It certainly is um, a religious service component, but it comes out in many different ways from just ways we spend time together, um, enjoying nature, um, maybe sharing meditations together, but also seeing that our relationship um, needs the help of a greater power than just the two of us together. And so having that component from the start, I think, has certainly been a big part of the recovery. We certainly share a lot of our um, time together, our lives together, and our leisure pursuits. We both enjoy travel. We enjoy hiking, uh, but we also respect and make time for the other's individual leisure pursuits. We each have our own interests and hobbies, and we allow each other to pursue those. I think I actually know you said that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's worth saying again of... Um, Learning to apologize, taking a tenth step, staying in today. But it's also, I think, beginning to see the things that are going okay about the relationship. Um, Seeing some of the commonalities that we had um, at the very beginning and beginning to feed those um, instead of just all the attention going on the dysfunction. And then finally, we talk about and share our dreams for the future. We might each have different ideas of what we would like to do in the future, but we share them with each other, and then we try to find a common ground. We would like to invite anybody in this audience who wants to come up and share how they themselves sabotaged a relationship in recovery. Come on up. You can come by yourself if you want. so much Tom and, and Gail um, I feel I'm qualified to come up here and talk because I'm in the process of active sabotage right now I just want to tell on my disease and tell you what I'm doing and with this knowledge that, and wisdom that I've heard from a man um, who um, has a very uh, similar story than mine um, I just want to share this I'm Rick, I'm Gramer, I'm an alcoholic and an addict Hi, I'm an anesthesiologist. I live in, in uh, New Smyrna Beach, Florida, close by. 
Um, uh, my wife, Janet, who uh, is kind of shy, um, I didn't want to come up on the stage, but <clears throat> uh, what I want to do is um, tell you what not to do. And um, um, I, I've been married eight years to this woman. I've been sober ten. That means that this woman has never seen me in the active throes of my addiction, in my, in my drinking, in my, in my drug craze days. So she doesn't know how I was when I was crazy, other than from what I've told her, what other people have told her. So I've been married three times. And um, I've never done anything consistently, never, except stay sober, thank God. It's the thing I've done the most in my whole life, stay sober. And um, uh, when I got married this time, it was in, it was three years in recovery, and I made a commitment. And um, staying sober one day at a time for a long time takes a commitment. And what I do to sabotage this relationship is I always bring up the D word. Because when things aren't going good in our relationship, when there's, when I, th when, when there's an argument that goes up, I'm always, go I'm always threatening her. I'm telling her I'm going to get a divorce. That's what I did twice other times. You know, when I was unhappy with where I was, I wanted to escape, and this is how I feel in my marriage sometimes. When, uh, when the, the, when I'm having problems with the kids now. I'm in a relationship with stepkids, and um, and. Um, uh, the the exact um, the exact um, things that go on in my relationship may not be the same as in yours, but I'm sure the feelings are the same. But when I'm really pissed off, and when I built my wall around me, and I don't want to communicate no more, and uh, when I when I'm sick and tired of the whole thing, I just want to do just what I did when I was using. I just want to get the hell away. I want out of this situation, and the easiest thing to do is just to once more, you know, call up another lawyer, draw up some papers, and have them served. And so, how not to sabotage this relationship that I'm in now is to stay in it. No matter what, no matter what, don't give up on this relationship. I broke lots of promises before, but when I, when I got into recovery, I decided I'm not going to break this relationship. It was a fifth step that I made between myself, another person, and God when I stood at the altar in November. And um, I don't want to do that again. And so I stand here to tell on my disease that <clears throat> when I'm feeling that way, that's the time I have, to, I have to summon my courage and my faith, talk to somebody in recovery, maybe somebody at this IDAA conference here, and... Um, and then once again, uh, fall in love again with the, with the woman that I married eight years ago. So don't make the same mistake that I made uh, well, um, twice before and hopefully not the third time. Thanks for letting me share that. Thank you. Dale and Mary Beth, welcome. My name's Dale. I'm an alcoholic and a drug addict. And our story is a little confusing because while she is a grateful member of Al-Anon, she's also an alcoholic and drug and alcoholic. We started drinking together while we were dating within a few months and have, depending on how our programs are going, the same sobriety date. Technically. 
If you want to get real technical about it, she drank her last drink just before midnight. My last drink was just after. Uh, it, it, it is a measure of how well our programs are going if we celebrate our birthday on the same day. Uh, but I, you know, I, I was listening to what you were talking about, and uh, it, it's, you know, it's, it's like so many of the other things, the same themes, you know, trying to catch up financially, going into the, the real tight budgeting and all that. Because of the dual nature of our disease and the fact that we both started drinking together and it increased together, it's interesting if you look back at it, one of us would, the alcoholism would accelerate and for the other person it would level out and then it, ours would level out and that one would accelerate. The, the line was always up of the sum of those two, but one of us would be sicker, one of us would be better at the time. And that went on, you know, for a long time. I, I was listening to Jackie today talking about pouring out, going back and pouring the liquor out of her father's bottles. And one of the things that used to annoy me would be to get up in the morning and find the liquor empty under the kitchen sink. Because I knew she'd finished it off. How dare you leave me drinkless in the morning. She was annoyed because she knew I'd finished it off. And I, well, neither of us knew for three years was our daughter who celebrated her, she woke up her 13th birthday to find me gone to treatment following a suicide attempt. For many years, from about age 10 on, when the things, when it finally got quiet, she would come downstairs open the door under the sink, take the bottle out and dump it, put the lid back on and put it back. She's now 30 years old. She's upstairs. Um, and, uh, but that, that, that went on. So we were, you know, we were an incredibly sick puppy. But in terms of destroying the relationship, the night that I got intervened on, one of the things that was obviously a problem for our relationship was I, I set it up so that they would intervene on her. <laughs> Seemed fair. You know, because I was... <laughs> they were coming after me next. That's what I told her. I said, they're coming. I said, you don't really want me to go to treatment. Because if I do, they'll come after you next. And and they did. Now, that, that was not real good. <laughs> and, you know, that was... As, again, it's, it's worked out. I'm, we're very grateful for it. But it was not good for the relationship as a whole. Uh, the next thing that was not good, I got to go to this fairly nice treatment center in St. Louis. And I was down there, and I was feeling so terribly sorry for myself and all that. And so I would call back and tell her how tough it was in this treatment center. Mind you, she was detoxing at home alone with two children, outpatient treatment, the friends and neighbors all calling She's having to deal with life on an ongoing basis while I'm away in the monastery, you know, and I'm the one complaining. This was not good for the relationship either. It, it was, was fairly destructive. There were a couple of things that we did sort of learn to do uh, that, that I would mention. If you, if you have people, and, and this is for anybody if you've got a spouse working a good Al-Anon program, but for ours it was, again, this kind of multi-level chess game because of both of our codependencies both of our addictions. There are some phrases we don't use in our house at all. Those are, when did you go to your last meeting? 
this is not good for our relationship. Uh, you know, that, that, that's not a relationship question. That's a your personal program question. Uh, and uh, don't you think you ought to call your sponsor? <laughs> this is not, this is somewhat damaging to our relationship. We've, we've learned to avoid this. Those become what you might call hot button issues in our house. Um, you know, that sort of thing. I, I was chuckling. Now, I wasn't bright enough to use computers early on. But when we got quicken, that did the same thing. Uh, it, but, but for us, it helped because it solved a lot of the financial argument. We would argue about money because I got immediately into, I've got to repair all the financial damage. But we figured out that if we went in there and punched the button, ten minutes later, somebody was going to be apologizing because we never knew who was right. So it, for, for us, it was, it was a bit of a help. But, you know, trying, you know, trying very diligently to stay out of each other's program uh, has been, uh, you know, has been an important thing, you know, for us. Um, you know, trying to simply, you know, simply ban, you talked about, you know, the D word, um, trying to, you know, just simply ban the D word from our vocabulary. So that's not a, that's not a question. And so far, it, that's been effective. Um, but that's, that's kind of where we've come through and some, some things that did some damage. I use the kids. Whenever we were in an argument, don't argue now. The kids are here. Um, talking through the kids to get my way. Um, I also didn't take care of myself. I gained a lot of weight. That way it would keep him away from me. Um, there was a lot of different things that I did. Um, I forgot what I was going to... He, he mentioned something earlier. <laughs> I, I had something I was going to say uh, about what was it that you said? I can't remember. Um, but he, oh, um, gosh, blank. Brandon, think about it. Okay. Uh, one of the things that I managed to do, I, I very effectively used the program of Alcoholics Anonymous to avoid my parental responsibilities entirely. I well remember I came home from treatment in November, and so it would have been January or February in Illinois. And uh, our son, who was seven at the time, or I'm sorry, eight at the time, just you know, one winter day went out without his coat on, as eight-year-old boys will do. And Mary Beth said, you know, tell him to get his coat on. And I opened the door and said, GW, come in and put your coat on. And he didn't do it. And so she said, make him put his coat on. And I said, look, I can't control people, places, or things. <laughs> and she said, GW, you get your ass back in here. I'm going to make you control people, places, and things. <laughs> but it was, you know, really it was a way of avoiding unpleasantness and, and avoiding, you know, that, that way I didn't have to parent. Therefore, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't responsible. And I could use the program as a pretty good excuse. I remembered. Sponsorship. One of the things that we did was Dale would go to his sponsor and say, Mary Beth did this. And I would go to my sponsor and say, Dale did this. Well, we would come back and logically my sponsor would say, I did it just right. I would have done that too. Dale's sponsor would say, Dale, you did it just exactly right. I would have done that too. And then we would both come get back together. 
but suddenly I realized that we were both using defensive mechanisms, and however we told our sponsors were how we saw it, it was perfectly legitimate.